Hello, everyone, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Studio 19 is once again back at IPA ACT's headquarters here in Canberra, and this week we are discussing both the challenges and opportunities of communicating authentically and effectively with Indigenous communities across Australia. Joining me to discuss this topic is Ray Griggs, AOCSC, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Indigenous Australians Agency. Ray is responsible for leading and coordinating the Commonwealth's Indigenous Advancement Strategy that includes policy development, program design and implementation and service delivery for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And he also provides advice on whole of government priorities for Indigenous Australians. Welcome to you, Ray. Also joining us on the panel today is Letitia Hope, who is the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of the National Indigenous Australians Agency. Letitia is a proud Bundjalung, Torres Strait Islander and South Pacific Islander woman. She is accountable for the operations and delivery portfolio of the agency, ensuring that through ongoing engagement with communities and cross-jurisdictional partners, the NIAA is a trusted and reliable partner contributing positively to the lives of all Indigenous Australians. Welcome to you, Letitia. Good morning. And finally, we have Justine O'Brien, SCMP, who is the President of the International Association of Business Communicators, the chapter here in Canberra. Justine is a consultant and educator in the communications field. She's worked for the last 25 years across communication and public relations in both the public and the private sectors. And her breadth and depth of experience across the communications field includes delivering high quality strategic advice and issues management, along with communication products and activities that are required to support an organisation's strategic objectives. Justine, welcome to you. Thank you, David. Uh, Letitia, if I might start with you, what is the key to effective and authentic communication with Indigenous communities? Thanks, David. Um, And before we start, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we meet on today and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, Look, I think this is, it starts with respect. It really is that simple. And I think sometimes we try and create a bit of a mystical art around this thing, but it's really about respect. So what does that mean in practice? For me, in my experience, it means understanding who you're talking to and and trying to come from a a position where you're not, you know, people get very wrapped around the axles on this issue, but it's, it starts with that respect, understanding who it is you're talking to, what's the context of what you're talking about. Um, if you're going into a community that you haven't met before, um, you know, do your research, understand what, what's happening in that community, use your local experts, and I do want to talk a little bit about that in the fu- in further on today. But, you know, context matters. So, you know, if I'm going into a community, I need to explain who I am and what I'm doing there. We need to understand that as bureaucrats, quite often our local communities have got um, multiple relationships with bureaucrats who come and go. 
and there's a history there to that story. But um, I think understanding the context of your conversation, being authentic, as you said, being honest about what you're there to talk about, doing your research about are there protocols? If you don't understand what those protocols are, it's pretty safe to ask. How do I, would you like to be addressed today? Is there people I need to talk to in this conversation? Is there particular things that need to happen in this conversation? And I think being able to lean into that discussion um, with that kind of basic respect is probably good for most relationships. Mm. But um, Do you have experience of perhaps where you might have got it wrong in the past? Absolutely. So... Um, when I was a, a, a pretty junior in my career in the public service, I was working in New South Wales government, and at that time, I was what they was known as the, I don't know, some ridiculous acronym called the senior project officer or SPOA or something like that. Um, I had to go out to a community uh, in Yass to have a conversation around money negotiations, and to be quite honest, I kind of went with my public service view and I was there to do a job and I kind of walked into a community and went into a community meeting where there were lots of elders and it was really strange. I was there to talk about this really positive thing where we wanted to kind of give money to this community for housing, purchasing, etc. and I could not get a single person to engage in the conversation. And so I went through the first kind of 30 minutes of this meeting leading up to morning tea with this stillness, just this kind of frosty stillness, uh, really awkward. Um, anyway, when I kind of broke for morning tea, one of the uncles came up to me or, or one of the senior um, men in that meeting came up to me and he said to me, where are you from? And of course, my response was, I'm from the New South Wales Department of Housing. And he said, no, I didn't ask you who you work for. I asked you where you were from. Mm. And so then I kind of went, oh, right, I'm from Bundjalung Mob and this, and I kind of talked about my provenance. Um... He then went and told the rest of the group where I was from. It was a really important lesson. And the rest of the meeting was very successful. So it was a really important meeting about understanding local protocol. So he didn't just want to know... I went in as an Indigenous officer. He didn't want to just know who I worked for. He wanted to know where I was from, which is totally appropriate in most circumstances. But I hadn't actually made the connection about my job and what I was there for in the context of why I was there. Mm. It was a very powerful learning lesson to me. And so if people are unsure about those kinds of protocols, my, my best advice is, is ask. Mm. Who do I need to address? Is there particular things I need to do in this conversation and contextualise the conversation? Is, is language a challenge, given that um, often English isn't always um, the first language that's spoken? Yeah, language really matters. So in, in some of our more remote communities, you know, English is a third, fourth, fifth language. So there are language barriers that, you know, you may come across, but language matters again in most conversations. Because when I say the word strategy, it means something to you, but it might need something to me. So being really clear about what you mean in terms of the words, being really clear not to be bureaucratic. We love to talk in acronyms. We love to talk in our own language of the tribe of bureaucracy, being really clear about what's the message you're trying to send and breaking your language down into message. And I don't mean being disrespectful in relation to that, but, you know, language matters for most people in conversations. So understanding who you're talking to, understanding words, not trying to be kind of academic and bureaucratic, and it depends on the context of the conversation that you're trying to have. Mm. And I suppose also getting comfortable with sort of the stillness and the quietness often um, in Indigenous communities that uh, are often seen to be, uh, you know, listen and reflecting deeply rather than 
responding immediately as we might in more urban communities? Yeah, look, that's certainly been my experience. Pace and tone and cadence of a conversation really matters. So um, when I was always... um, I was always kind of taught, you know, two ears, one mouth and use them in that order. Listen first, talk later. And that can often happen across community. I mean, there's no stereotype, but it can often happen where people will be slow to respond and they'll be quite... um, really listening deeply to what's being said and reflecting, thinking that through and then come back with something later. And that's quite common. Um, It can be common. But as I said, you know, those kinds of flows of conversation, which is why building local relationships, building relationships in place, not making stereotype judgments about who you're talking to, being forward, leaning in the conversation around why you're there, what's your outcome, who do you need to talk to, making sure that people understand what you're saying, using language that means something to them rather than to you, I think are all really important communication mm. cues no matter what environment you're So really in. preparation is, is, is key to this. But, Ray, uh, many of our Indigenous uh, people are living in urban communities. What do, does that make it easier uh, to get the message across or, or what are some of the considerations that people should take into those uh, conversations with Indigenous peoples in urban centres? Well, I think um, it's always important to understand the demography of the audience you're trying to communicate with. 80% of Indigenous Australians live in the southeast corner, predominantly Western Sydney and, uh, and Brisbane, you know, from that sort, of, you know, that sort of corridor there. Um, 50% of that 800,000 people uh, under 25, so you've got a you've, you've got some cultural uh, history about valuing what elders say. Nearly 50% of your population is under 25. What does that mean for your communications? Mm-hmm. So understanding the demography, uh, I think, particularly as a non-indigenous person, is really important. And I think those those numbers surprise a lot of people because a lot of our focus tends to be uh, to be drawn to remote. Uh, and very remote communities, which is very important, but um, when, you, when you're trying to reach large numbers of people, you've got to think about that. So I think the trick here is how do you... How do you, um, uh, you don't have to go to bespoke channels all the time. There are mainstream channels that can reach very large numbers of Indigenous Australians, but the trick is how do you use those channels and still engage authentically with them? I, and I think one of, one of the biggest things to remember, and, and it's try not try not to have a sort of deficit discussion here, but there is a deep distrust of governments, governments, all levels, in Indigenous Australia. So if you're about to go out and uh, anywhere in the public sector and try and communicate either a, a new policy or even just to consult, you need to understand that there is that distrust. And, um, you know, Letitia sort of talked about the long history of bureaucrats visiting. You're in the conga line of, of uh, bureaucrats who've come and, come and gone before these communities for a long time. Um, so you need to, you need to really um, be very conscious of that. You need to approach uh, any engagement with a, with a great deal of humility, particularly as a non-Indigenous bureaucrat. Uh, if, if you don't, um, things are not going to go well. 
you do need to listen. You do need to be comfortable with silence, all those things that Letitia's talked about. Um, and no matter how experienced you might think you are as, as, a, as a public servant in this area, um, particularly as a non-Indigenous one, you're only scratching the surface of what you think you know. And again, I think that's really good framing for thinking about an engagement. Mm. So you talk there about going out and, and consulting and that, you know, you're not the first bureaucrat who's engaged um, and there are often others that are going to be out there speaking as well, coming back to the same communities. What are those risks of over-consulting uh, in, in community? Well, um, there's a couple of risks. One, one is uh, just the use of the word consulting because uh, consulting can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, that's that's the first point. Is um, is it is it genuine discussion? Uh, are you coming at the very start of your policy development cycle, for example, uh, and engaging and listening, and you're going to take some of this input back and um, and use it, or have you already made your mind up and you're just going out to tick a box? People can pick that pretty quickly, pretty easily. In fact, one of the things that the government's been trying to do over the last couple of years is shift away from consultation per se to genuine co-design and partnership. Um, now, co-design's an interesting term. Um, again, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And again, it's also been abused uh, a fair bit over the years where um, there's, a, there's a charade of co-design, but people have actually already made their mind up. Mm. So that's what we've got to get out of and uh, really focus on that genuine partnership, that genuine engagement, uh, that takes time. It's hard. You know, we've seen this in the closing, closing the Gap work we've done over the last two and a bit years. It's hard, it's, uh, it's prolonged, but the rewards, if, if you do it well, are fantastic mm. for all concerned. Justine, really, it, it all comes down to preparation, really, you know, and humility by the sounds of things to really get this bit right. And that's... That's best practice communications, isn't it? Being ready and, uh, and really understanding the audience. Yeah, understanding your audience is key to any communication, but particularly with um, an audience that is uh, seen to be vulnerable um, and for who there is a very long history of uh, mistrust, um, rightly so, and that continues uh, through today. So understanding how to connect with the Indigenous audiences, and I use the plural there because, as Ray pointed out, it's not just one, uh, for me, it's not one bucket. It's very diverse. Um, you've got age, gender, lifestyle, location going on, understanding what's going on there. Um, also understanding um, a particular community's um, reflection on government and communication. So there is research out there that shows that there is a, a very high percentage of Indigenous communities and individuals who are just willing to receive information. And that's, that's that. And then there's a smaller number, but still significant, who are actually active in finding out information on government. But there's also a small segment um, of uh, Indigenous peoples who are very resistant. They don't want to know. And that could be, uh, it tends to be uh, older generations who have a long history of mistrust um, 
with the government uh, for things that have gone on in the past. So they're a, a particularly difficult audience to get to. It's understanding that there are intermediaries that you can then go through for information that they really do need to know, critical information, for example, health information. So yes, knowing your audience and understanding them is absolutely key. As the leader of the um, IABC here in Canberra, and you have many members uh, who work in communication in government, is enough being done to prepare those communications professionals to be effective in Indigenous communication? I, there's a bit of yes and a bit of no in that. I think we've got a long way to go. Um, I think as uh, Letitia and Ray have, have um, spoken uh, about it, 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 the NIAA is absolutely doing a better job of it. Um, I think we can do better. I think there's uh, a better understanding that communicators need to have. Um, but it's not just about um, the communication professionals, it's the organisation itself. Um, now, Ray touched on this, and it's almost stole my thunder there, Ray, um, in that, you know, a lot of communicators are used to the one-way communication or two-way communication. Uh, there's uh, the third way, which is two-way iterative communication or uh, transformational, which is where you're going out to a community, finding out what's going on, and rather than using the word co-design, is actually getting input on the design of a policy or a program that's actually best fit for that community for as best as you can. That's the level of communication that we really need to get to in that communicators go out, they talk, they listen, they come back to the organisation and then they brief up to the decision makers to say, this isn't going to work because of this, this will work however, and then and then leave it to them to understand how a policy or program can work better. Hmm. Letitia, it would seem that these these skills and these this, this approach really, it's not just about the communication professionals who might be sitting in a particular uh, engagement. It, it would seem to me that these really need to become common uh, across the public service, that people really do need to you know, to, to build their skills uh, of engagement. Absolutely. I think it's part of the craft of being a public servant. Um, you know, I just wanted to, to kind of echo in something that Ray and Justine's talked about. Pa- partnership takes time and quite often in government we're very too rushed. We've got deadlines. We've got all these other pressures that we're trying to kind of uh, deliver on, which is our role for government. Um, and they, they, they can clash, you know, the time of trust and partnership. So, you know, the other thing is, is about building these relationships regardless of what's actually happening, right? These are long, they're relationships. They're not just transactions. So being in place, understanding community, working with community, understanding their values, their goals, and getting to understand what's important to them. Um, and we, as well as trying to kind of, you know, deliver the business of government is part of the craft of what we need to do. And I just wanted to pick up on something else. Um, I think being really clear about your expectations with your conversation with community is really important. So, you know, it's the don't overpromise. Don't don't kind of set expectations you can't meet, no matter how awkward the conversation is. You need to understand your authorising environment and the boundaries that you're operating in and where your delegations are and what you can and can't commit to. Because one of the easiest ways to lose trust in a community, not just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, for any relationship, is to promise something and then not be able to deliver it. Mm. So if you say you're going to do something, follow up and do it 
actually follow up and do it. Even if the answer is no, send the email and say, look, I'm really sorry, that can't happen, but what else can we do to work on? Or don't promise things that are well outside your delegation and remit because that will erode the trust in your relationship quicker than anything else. And as Ray pointed out, we're talking about communities that have had a whole range of trust issues for a whole range of good reasons. And so that trust building is really important. I think expectation management on both sides is important to kind of maintain and build that. Mm. Are you finding that with this awareness and understanding um, and perhaps even through the, the COVID period where, where things were changed, uh, things were different, decisions were made differently, are, have you found improvements or are you seeing improvements in the way that we are engaging effectively with Indigenous communities? So I think we've talked about this before in one of these podcasts yeah. around how important the relationships that our on-the-ground staff, particularly in the NIAA, but not only, have built with community, you know, 70 officers across the country um, visiting 400 communities or so every year, well, maybe not so much in the COVID environment, but relationships with over 400 communities, um, which, which allowed allowed us to be able to understand, one, critically, what is actually happening on the ground, what is really happening on the ground for people. Two, what are what is community's desire and aspirations around managing these issues, which then allowed government to enable those things. So, um, and we're currently in that season again, you know, with the with what's happened over the weekend, we are currently yeah. in a season where we've got four states in lockdown and we're talking about community and community safety and those kinds of things. So, um, I, you know, the, you can't withdraw from a bucket you haven't invested in and it's why I can't over, overstate building relationships in your BAU rather than just transactional interactions, understanding the aspirations of community is the craft of government. Now, that doesn't mean we can always deliver community's expectations, but we can always be clear about what we can do to lean into help to create that public value in line with what government is trying to deliver. Mm. You certainly seem to, through that period, though, um, really worked well with the Indigenous broadcasting sector to get the message out there. Can you perhaps give us a bit of a, a, an outline of, of what that sector looks like and how people can use that to get messages through to yeah, Indigenous communities. So you're right. Um, we worked really closely with the Indigenous broadcasting sector who are always happy to receive government funds in terms of advertising dollars. Mm. But we also um, worked really closely with the other Indigenous sector like remote stores who had posters and things up, you know, in language about what is and what isn't happening. The medical services, the schools leaned in, um, you know, through a whole range of programs we run through the IAS, a whole range of service providers lean into getting the messaging out about what's really happening for people. Um, you know, out in Jintaporta or Santa Teresa, uh, the CDP program painted car bonnets and put them around the community with public health safety mechanisms or messages, sorry, and they used the school kids to do that. It was just fantastic about good public health messaging from community in community language um, to try and... Uh, get the message across about how to keep communities safe. Totally driven by them, enabled by government. Mm. Ray, have you seen uh, examples uh, in the last period of time since you've been in charge at the NIAA where you have really been able to deliver a, a genuine community-led design uh, project? Well, that would be... I suspect any answer I gave would be contested okay. um, on that front. But uh, uh, what I w the example I would use, uh, and it would still be a contested example, would be the uh, 
the, the work we've been doing around the co-design of the Indigenous voice. Mm-hmm. Now, that that work uh, was has been undertaken by uh, 52 uh, Australians, uh, the vast majority of whom are, are Indigenous, probably about 75% are Indigenous. Um, they were selected. They weren't... They weren't chosen by the community. They were selected uh, by government. But what what the government was very careful to do was to make sure that it was a real cross-section because there is, there is no point in just getting um, a bunch of people who already agree with where, you, where they might think the government wants to head on something. Uh, and the 52 people that were selected really do cover the spectrum uh, f- right across, Mm -hmm. and have a range of views uh, on Indigenous voice, which which I think were were, um, very hard for people to say that there was a a common thread in that group, which was terrific. Uh, And and it made made the the first phase of the work, the the, the initial uh, design work, um, very, very challenging, but very rewarding again because of that that richness of, of the discussion. What were some of those challenges that, that came about? Oh, well, the, you know, uh, the, the one that, that always leaps to mind in the discussion around Indigenous voice is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So you had a, a number of the 52 who are uh, very committed to the Uluru Statement. Um, that was not within the terms of reference uh, of, the, uh, of the co-design group to talk about enshrinement of the voice, for example. Uh, but what these people did is they brought their views and they brought their perspectives to the discussion and to the work, uh, and I think that enriched the, um, the you know the the interim uh, report that was handed to the government in, in um, October of last year. After that, <coughs> the cabinet considered that, um, and very conscious that it's not a government process; it's it's the process of of these fifty two people, those that fifty two people in the co-design group then took that out to about four months of public consultation, which was one of the more extensive public consultations uh, that occurred, about 115 different face-to-face um, consultations across 67 communities around the country, about 3,000 submissions, about 1,200 surveys, um, another 14, 1,500 people included in uh, targeted stakeholder uh, meetings and webinars. So a, a very extensive um, uh, engagement process. In terms of the communications, the, <clears throat> the, big, the big thing here was don't try and over-control the product. Um, let uh, the Indigenous broadcasting sector, for example, take the basic information and present it in a way that they know will resonate with community or they know will Im- impact with the community. So don't, over, don't try and over-control the product. Mm. And the important thing there is to make sure that uh, the base information you give for the product to be developed from is clear, is simple, uh, uh, is cognizant of the diversity of the audience that, that, you're, that you're trying to communicate with. And I think, I think we did that particularly well. Mm. Um, and one of the things that was, I think, done very well was the, was the use of infographics. Uh, and that was very powerful and very useful in community and, and certainly some of, the, some of the, uh, the face-to-face consultations where people would be sitting there 
in the meeting looking at the infographics and then talking to that uh, in their questions or discussions. So, I, you know, I think uh, don't over-control, but make sure that your message, as, as Letitia said, is free of jargon, clear... Um, visual. Visual where, where, where it needs to be to complement the, mm. the language, yeah. How do you how do you mature that that capability around sort of two key issues there around time and giving these consultations the time that they obviously need and deserve and that issue around control of not wanting to over control but probably a large parts of your instinct are wanting to control so how again do we build that capability in the public sector to be to be more effective. Well, I, I think the, the key there is, is building strategic patience. Uh, that, that's really what we're talking about. Is the, <laughs> and and it's, it's the sort of nirvana I know. But, um, you know, if, if, if we're serious, and I, I, know, I know from the PM down that, that the Cabinet's very serious about partnership um, being the way that we operate with Indigenous Australia going forward, if we're serious, then we need to accept that we have to have the strategic patience to allow these consultations, these partnerships and the co-design processes to occur um, and to accept that they're going to take longer than we would like sometimes. And that, that is just going to be the price of doing business. But then... It Yes, it is the price of doing business as such, but again, it's it's to that point of maturing that. How do we build that conversation inside the public sector that, that knows and understands that this is going to be the way that we're going to do it? How do, well, how, how do well, we turn it from an aspiration to a? Well, I, I think it, I think it is it is already being that's already happening. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we've seen, and it's not just in the Commonwealth Public Service. Uh, the the whole point of the closing the gap partnership agreement is much more active engagement with uh, states and territories as well. And, and I think the jurisdictional public services have, have, really, um, have really embraced uh, this approach as well. It, for me, it all comes down, f- it, it comes down from leadership messaging mm-hmm. that it is OK, that this, this may take longer. It is OK to build reasonable timeframes into your planning that um, the partnership approach... Uh, will take more time. And we've seen evidence of that even in, even in securing the National Partnership Agreement itself. Uh, that took probably six months longer than anyone thought it was going to take. Mm-hmm. And, and the government was, was accepting and comfortable that, that that occurred because what was important is that we land the agreement uh, in a way that reflected a partnership approach. And so I think Top-down messaging is hugely important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's a particularly complex thing to mature, uh, but people need to know they have the authorising environment to do it. Mm. So, Justine, you're advising um, the leadership. Um, how do you go about it? How do you go about um, explaining to people the importance of this strategic patience uh, that Ray talks about? I think it comes down to... Um, attitudes that people have where you want an outcome. People tend to go, oh, I know the solution before they actually get to the outcome and wanting people to pull back from that. It is an attitudinal behavioural thing that one needs to be able to pull back and say, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait it out. I'm going to listen because at the end, we want the best outcome. And you're not going to get that best outcome if you provide a solution up front without actually doing that proper 
um, consultation, um, listening, understanding and working with. So it's not just listening and understanding, it's working with these communities and working with these people for the best outcome. That's my advice is don't focus on the immediate solution, focus on the outcome. And if you want it to work, you need to give it that time and patience, particularly, I think, with the Indigenous audiences, uh, because it hasn't happened a lot in the past and it's going to take a long time, I believe, and Letitia can correct me if I'm wrong, it may take a long time for communities to fully trust government across all of government. Mm. Letitia, that's, that's an interesting point um, Justine makes there because it really goes to the, the capacity and the capability of the public service to be able to engage authentically and effectively, um, often in an environment that perhaps they're not used to you know, that there is a, a sense of I'm not comfortable with this uh, because I don't do it every day. How, how do they build confidence to overcome that, that resistance to, to, to be more effective? So I think there's a couple of things. So um, along with the kind of strategic mechanisms that Ray was talking about, the Australian Public Service Commission is actually developing the academy um, and, and that's all about, you know, the art and the craft. But before we get into those kind of technical trainings, the art and the craft of being a public service as we talk about, the craft, you know, do, it's really simple things. Do your research. Be prepared. That is respectful. Understand why you're going in there and, and, and what's happening in that community. Use your on-the-ground intelligence. You know, be clear about your boundaries and your authorising environment as a person. Test your messages with people. Sometimes what I try to say is not what I meant to say because I think I've said it but I haven't really conveyed that in a, you know, in a great way. Use organisations like Justine to help build those skills and capabilities. Lean into those experts in communication and, and build your skills. Um, and, you know, as Ray said, there's a bunch of different tools, infographics, you know, not death by PowerPoint, please, people, but infographics matter. You know, people learn and take information in different ways. So conversation as well as graphics, as well as things in writing, they're all pretty standard ways people take in information. So be clear and, and use a multiple of techniques in relation to that. Keep the language simple. And the art side of it, I think, is, you know, you have to be forward-leaning to build trust. You've got to lean into it. So, you know, be have have a sense of humility. It's actually okay if you get it wrong. Be brave enough to ask the question. You know, in terms of when you're going into a conversation, be brave enough to say, how would you like me to address you? Is there anyone else I need to be talking with? Um, please let me know if I've said something that, that offends you because it's not my intention, right? That helps build trust as well and be honest. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, observation without judgment is really powerful. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, if I came to your house, David, and I saw a bucket of shoes at the front of your door and I knocked on the door, I may or may not know whether I can or cannot wear shoes in your house. But I could always say, David, I've observed a bucket of shoes. Would you like me to take my shoes off? It's a pretty simple thing. It's a it's an analogy, but it's a kind yeah, yeah. of a simple thing to lean into mm. to have the conversation. And even having asking the questions, I think, is a really important way to build trust. And it's an important way to build respect because it means I'm trying to understand where you're coming from. And I'm trying to understand how to build trust in this relationship. So um, I think they're some of the things that, as public servants, we, we need to make sure we balance. You know, there's a skill side to it and then there's the art side to it. Mm. And, Ray, from your point of view, what would you like to... What message would you like to leave people with to inspire them to be more effective, to be better, to be more patient, to, to deliver on that strategic patience you mentioned? Well, I, I look, I think, 
I think it all comes down to um, uh, building your own um, your own cross-cultural knowledge. Uh, now there's there's many many ways to do that. I mean, we have a great program in NIAA which I'll plug, um, which is available for the rest of the public service called Footprints, which is like a, a CPD program, uh, self self-paced and self-directed, so people can actually um, they can they can build their cross-cultural awareness. Um, yeah, simple things like if you're planning an engagement, allow the first half hour, 40 minutes, to be a bit of a general yarn in community. Don't go straight into agenda item one is uh, here's the because yeah yeah as I mentioned, pe people have a bit of a distrust of government. Um, they will see they won't care whether you're from the NIAA, DSS, a state department, or local government. You, you will just be government when you're there. And so there's, there's going to be a period uh, in the meeting where people want to get things off their chest and it might have nothing to do with what you're there to talk about. Sit there, listen, because it actually gives you a bit of a window into what that community's thinking. Mm. Um, so it's, it's little things like that. I think those little things really do matter. And uh, if, you, if you think about how you plan your engagement... Uh, you, you will have a much more effective, much more effective engagement than, than just sort of stomping on in and doing what you've always done. Mm. And there would also, I would say, uh, I would suggest, be an opportunity for people to influence their own agencies and their own departments. Sort of working back into the agency, I imagine that you could uh, encourage, um, you know, more people to take on the training, more people to be involved, more people to be engaged. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and um, um, it, there are programs like Jarwin, for example, where you know, we've had six or 700 secondees from the, from the APS go out into Indigenous communities, working with Indigenous organisations for, for weeks, sometimes months. Uh, they bring back a different perspective. So uh, th there's, a, there's a big alumni throughout the APS of people who've had that experience. There are people who've worked in um, in this agency or its predecessors who are now in different departments around the place. Tap into their experience. You know, uh, they will sh they will share that, and uh, uh, th that's obviously a way forward too. Mm. Uh, and Justine, a final uh, piece of advice um, from the communications professional on the panel. What would you? What would it be? Planning, planning. I think, and Ray mentioned that, and Natasha has mentioned it. Why? are you communicating and exactly to who within that community are you wanting to communicate with mm. and what are the other best methods that you can use and don't ever make assumptions about knowing something. Um, when um, I, I always find that with research, you always learn something new. So um, even though it does cost money to do good research in some cases, um, it's actually well worth it because A, you learn something new and, and B, you can actually learn the best methods for communicating a certain message to a community. Uh, so yes, planning and also being able to adjust as required. So you have your plan, as I said before, you know what your outcomes are, but you can adjust the way in which you get to those outcomes. All right. Well, Justine uh, O'Brien, uh, Ray Griggs and Letitia Hope, thank you all uh, for joining us on Work With Purpose today for this very important conversation. I think it's something that we should keep 
talking about and keep measuring and keep building that capability across the APS um, because it is very important that we that we do so. So uh, thank you to uh, you three to coming in today and to you, the audience. Thanks also for giving us some of your valuable time and attention today for this important topic. We do appreciate your support and we are continuing to see a growth in numbers for the podcast. So that's great. So uh, again, if you would like to share, uh, rate or review our program on your favourite podcast app, that's always appreciated. Thanks once again to our great partners here at IPA, ACT, and to the Australian Public Service Commission who've been so supportive in making these conversations happen. So thank you once again. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks for our next program. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.